You're listening to Jewish Matters with Rabbi Jonathan Feldman. Good evening, everyone, and uh, welcome to the Jewish Matters podcast. Tonight we're talking about finding our purpose in life. And I'd like to do that by sharing with you my own personal journey, my story. And the introduction to this is that part of finding our purpose and our path in life is being open to the path. And Judaism views that as a partnership between us and the Almighty. In other words, we have to make our effort, we have to go on the search, but there's an idea that a way a person wants to go, God will lead them, God will help them. And sometimes it might be, we talked about the rutzon, the deepest part of our will, sometimes it might be even a spiritual subconscious part of us that is looking for something, that is trying to find that, trying to connect it, and uh, that comes out through the journey and through the search. And the other part is being open to what uh, we call divine providence, to God's hand, serendipity, um, karma. People call it many different things, but it's viewing that there's a larger story going on in our lives in the world, and that events are not random, and that if we are searching, then we'll be sent the people we need to guide us along the way. And we'll be... Given opportunities to experience things if we are open to them and if we take advantage of them. So, and the story I'm going to tell you has many of those elements. And as I mentioned to you, it's my own personal story. So, um, like many young people in my late teens, early 20s in college, is really a time of searching and try, a time of trying to figure out who we are. At least for me it was, and for many young people. And for me that meant... Uh, figuring out what I wanted to do with my life. And I give my parents a lot of credit. They never told me, be a doctor, lawyer, Indian chief, never boxed me into a path. And it was really a message of find out what you are good at or find out what you want to be doing, who, what is an expression of who you are. So what happened was that in, uh, in college as an undergraduate, I studied liberal arts really to figure out my purpose, figure out meaning in life in the, in the world. And after two years, it was very intellectually stimulating, but not really leading me on that path. So I thought I need to get off the treadmill because if I don't, I'm gonna wind up like many of the other pre-law students uh, by default. I was a history major, and uh, really everyone was pre-law. Not that there's anything wrong with being a lawyer, as long as you know why you're doing it and you want to do it. But I didn't want it to be by default. So I took a year off. And over that year, I set out to travel. Now, what was going to unfold is that over that year, there would be, at different points, uh, a, an awakening or a kind of not even awakening, a jabbing at my Jewish identity that would prepare me for Israel. Now, Israel was not a goal. Israel was an afterthought after I'd gone to every other country. When I ran out of money, uh, someone suggested, go work on kibbutz, you can earn your key. So I had looked into that and uh, it was kind of a possible plan. 
uh, but not as going to our Jewish homeland at all. So I started out in Europe and I was studying in Paris for four months. And those incidents that I mentioned started to happen already. Now I grew up very reform, Sunday school. Uh, we did not, uh, we did have optional Hebrew. I did Aleph, Beit, Gimel, and then dropped out at Hay or at Dalid. And, um, but it did give me a strong sense of Jewish identity, of feeling good about being Jewish. And um, so what started to happen over the year is that these different moments started to come up. The first one was in Paris, where I was studying for a semester. And like all good Parisian students, I was hanging out in a cafe. And there's this guy sitting next to me. We start talking. He's Vietnamese. And somehow it comes up. I'm American, Jewish. He guessed it. And he said, and this is one of those points where the conflict with Iran seemed to be uh, escalating with the United States. And he said, what would you do if there was a war? And my answer was, I'm not going to go fight for those capitalists to have their oil fix. We should reduce consumption. Um, like many of my college peers would have probably have said, and he said to me, looked at me and he said, you are Jewish, you're from the oldest civilization that has given the Western world its values, and those people are your enemy and the enemy of Israel, and you should want to go in there and fight against them. And what are you going to do about it? And at that point I said, well, I, I, I don't know. I never looked at it that way. And then I kind of said to him, well, I'll be in Israel later in the year. I'll figure it out then. And of course, once again, that was not my intention going to Israel. And I don't even know where that came from. So, um, but my words would be prescient. So Paris is very beautiful and it's amazing being there. But Paris in the winter is very gray. And after one semester, I was like, okay, time to move on. I had done a, uh, the summer before Paris, I had traveled for a month through Italy, a month through Greece, and then um, I uh, had done a, a mountain climbing course in the Alps. So my father sent me an article about mountain climbing on Mount Kenya, ice climbing on Mount Kenya. And he was just kind of did it out of general interest as he did often, sent me interesting articles he thought I'd be interested in, good father. And I said, wow, that looks like a cool thing to do. So I looked at the map of Africa, Mount Kenya's here, all 17,000 feet of it, Israel's there. And I thought, okay, fly to Kenya, travel overland across Africa, I'll wind up in Israel. So I trained, I started training and running around the canals of uh, Holland, where I had a friend who I was visiting, bought a one-way ticket to Nairobi. And it was quite an experience because I'd never been in a third world country. Well, I'd been all over Europe by that time, almost every Western country in Western Europe. And I, the plane lands, the door opens, and this uh, wave of heat just hits me. Beautiful palm trees, totally different than Paris in December, January. And 
the striking thing about Africa as well is the sky. The sky is just vast and enormous. So I did indeed climb Mount Kenya. Uh, it was kind of crazy. I went up one side, met a guy. We did it together in three days, which was way too quick. Got a little altitude sickness, which uh, I got over. And then the guy said, okay, I'm heading back. And I said, well, I'm not heading back that way. We've already come there. We've already seen that. And he said, well, I got to go back that way. So I went ahead alone, soloed back down, uh, found some interesting watering holes with lots of marks of animals and thought it would be a cool thing to camp out and see them first thing in the morning drinking at this watering hole until I realized that after uh, the watering hole, I might be there breakfast. So I did wind up spending that night in a hut, some security, but I found some other guys. We rented a car, did the game parks. Africa's amazing, beautiful. And then it was across the continent and didn't really have a plan. And it was kind of each step go as, uh, go, go with the flow. So I did make it up to Northern Kenya and then found out now what were the trucks, even when there were transportation, it was these open, open back trucks. It would pile on all of the freight, pile the people on top. And uh, that was a mode of transportation, days on day's end, 110 degrees. It was uh, quite the adventure. So to get to Southern Sudan, uh, I did find a guy with a Land Rover. We made it into Southern Sudan. And then I'd heard that in Southern Sudan, there was a tribe that wrestled. So I'd been a wrestler myself in college, and I thought that would be a cool thing to do. So I set out into the bush on these trucks. Uh, they'd come by, you just hang out in the shook. They'd come by maybe once every two, three days, if you were lucky, and um, headed off in that direction, uh, near the area of Juba. Now this area is being developed, they found oil, but at the time it was, uh, thatched huts, uh, indigenous populations with loincloths and hunting spears and dogs, and it was quite undeveloped. So, but what I did notice, and first of all, whether it was Kenya, Sudan, people were first of all so friendly. Uh, if you were a visitor, they would just kind of grab you by the hand, even if they didn't understand the language take you to a restaurant, which was an open hut, and share with you a dinner of goat stew. And, um, but the other thing that really struck me, and people invited me into their homes, was they lived with dirt floors, mud walls, what we would consider very much third world, and no electricity, no running water. Yet, at sunset, they would take a rickety chair, put it in front of their house, just sit there watching the sunset, their children or their grandchildren running around, and they were happy. And it got to make me start to question my view of uh, what was progress, what is kind of the goal of man. And I saw in their simplicity and their family lives and their community, they had something that maybe was even elusive in our 
first world with our first world problems. So, and yes, there is a minimum level of subsistence of having basic food and basic uh, health care that is needed. But beyond that, it really got to me to question what is truly happiness? What is truly meaningful in life? And um, more about that later. So I'm out in the bush. I wound up in the town where they wrestled only to find out that the competition was once a year and not when I was there. So nothing gained, nothing lost. But uh, shortly after that, in one of the nearby towns, someone once again took me, started leading me somewhere. And there was one of these huts with a big container next to it. And the person who lived there was a anthropologist who was out in the bush uh, studying the indigenous populations. And when he saw me, invited me in, invited me to stay with him. He was happy to have someone English, American, Western to talk to. And I was happy to have real toothpaste and not have to be drinking out of mud holes. So he invited me in, stayed a few days, then it was time to move on. And once again, it had somehow come up that I was Jewish. You know, when you're on these kind of journeys, you discuss life, where you're from, religion. And he says to me, if you're in Khartoum in 10 days, there's a Seder. Now, he wasn't Jewish. His wife was. She wasn't even around. But he said, I'll be there and you're welcome to join. So I hadn't had a Seder since four or five years, since my grandfather had passed away. And I, sure enough, I was in Khartoum 10 days later and made it to the Passover Seder. And it was a motley crew of people who worked for the American consulate, some Sephardic businessmen, uh, seven or eight of us. There was a box of matzah, although I don't think the rest of the food was kosher for Passover, not that I even knew what that was at the time. So uh, this would be very significant later, and we'll get to that point. But I had a Passover Seder in Africa. Fast forward, traveling from Khartoum to Egypt was quite interesting because the Trucks were replaced by barges, yeah, traveled by barge, uh, open bed trains. The trains were so crowded, I'd either travel on the roof, don't worry, they didn't go more than 20 kilometers per hour, or on the flatbeds under a uh, bulldozer that was chained down. Good thing it didn't move. So across deserts like this, and up the Nile, and on the way to Egypt. And what would happen is the trains would just stop for three, four hours, no reason. And everyone would get off and just start talking. And so the next Jewish poke that happened to me was, uh, we started talking religion. They were mostly Muslim, of course. And one of them says to me, what tribe are you from? Now, I was going to say, you know, I'm American citizen, United States of America, we don't have tribes, passport. And all of a sudden it just blurted out, I'm from the Jewish tribe. Now, maybe it wasn't such a smart thing to do in the middle of Egypt. Although back then the anti-Israel sentiment, actually it was just warming up. This was after uh, 
Camp David and uh, the peace deal uh, with Anwar Sadat and Menachem Begin. So, and then it got to talking about religion. Um, now, the first part of that was not even so much that I said it to him, but that I, it's probably the first time in my life I primarily identified myself as being Jewish. First thing coming out. So then it was, well, you know, what about the Bible, the Quran? He starts preaching me the Quran, and he said, I said to him, well, I don't believe in that, and I don't believe in God, really. And he couldn't wrap his head around the fact that here was someone who says they did not believe in God. And I couldn't wrap my head around the fact that there was someone who couldn't understand that someone couldn't believe in God. It wasn't even in his uh, repertoire of ideas that someone could have this outlook. He'd probably never met an agnostic before, atheist. I guess I was more of an agnostic. So, um, so here I am, and uh, eventually make it to Aswan in southern Egypt, visit Luxor, Valley of the Kings, incredible. And I'd studied some Egyptology before leaving in the library in Holland. And fascinating, beautiful landscape, uh, very intriguing. No thoughts about, you know, my ancestors were slaves here, really. No, not, not, none of that. But what did happen, which would be of significance, is in the middle of the night, I started had writhing pains in my stomach. And I was very concerned because the healthcare there uh, was very subpar. I'd met a couple of guys who lived in the Middle East for a year each, working, and they were with me, so they were pretty resourceful, got me to the hospital, which was um, something out of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. It was old syringes, the old non-disposable type, um, stains on the mattresses, cobwebs, in the rafters, and I'm saying to myself, this is not really happening to me. The doctor did speak English, and it turned out he said I had severe dehydration, and later I'd find out that I had some other stuff too. So I take it easy, get myself to Cairo, rest for a week, and I'm ready to try and make it to Israel. So at that time, as I said, the border between Egypt and Israel had opened up, and I took a bus to the Suez Canal, the uh, ferry across the canal, bus to Israel. And then another one of these kind of Jewish prods happened at the border. So I get to the border of Israel once again. The last thing in my mind is that I'm arriving at a homeland. Um, I really didn't know much about Israel at all. And I get to the border now. I've been traveling in the third world for three months. Everything's dusty. The border guards on the Egyptian side are in these old rumpled uniforms with a five o'clock shadow, trying to say there's a problem with your passport to get a little bakshish. And then you go through and you arrive at the border of Israel. And the first thing that just jumps out at me is the lush green behind the fence. And then you go through and you see these brand new bus, Egged buses. You see these young strapping soldiers with their Ray-Bans. And something inside of me felt proud about this. 
And once again, unexplainable because I didn't feel identified with Israel. But yet, it happened. Some people call it the Pintaliyid, that deep inside of us there is an essence that does connect, that does identify, that does want to connect to our people and to our land. Call it what you will, it happened. So I get to Tel Aviv, and um, the bus station in Tel Aviv is not the prettiest place to arrive. Um, Bangorian Airport's a lot better. And uh, I'm wandering around, and first of all, I'm, so I made it halfway across the continent of Africa, and here I couldn't find the youth hostel. The person in the information booth didn't speak English. The guy behind uh, just was out of it. On the map, I later found out there was just a, uh, a blank where the youth hostel should have been on the map. And the one distant relative I had, the second time I called him, invited me over, but this time he didn't. So I'm wandering around, I'm sick, I'm still very weak, and this guy comes up to me, and he looks like a regular college student, except he's got a beanie on his head and strings coming out of the sides of his pants. Nice enough guy, starts talking to me, where you're from, where you've been traveling through, and then he says something about food and a bed, and I'm like, let's go. So, turned out, it was uh, a few guys, a small bunch of guys, who had an outreach center right near the central bus station, upstairs from a synagogue, and they were out recruiting guys like me. So, um, now you'd say, well, what if I'd been picked up by the Moonies or by the Jews for J or uh, something else like that? And actually I was. I, in Paris, uh, someone come up to me and say, are you a person who values wisdom? So what are you going to say? No. So of course I said, yes, of course. Are you a seeker? Yes. We've got the talk for you. Drags me in. Turns out it was Scientology, Dianetics. And I sat there for... After the first five minutes, I said, this is uh, ho ho uh, hokey pop psych. Couldn't wait to get out of there. In order to, to uh, get out of there, they guilt you into buying a book. And that was the end of that experience. But what struck me about these guys, first of all, what's so interesting, once again, that converging of events was that one of the five guys there had spent two years in Africa. So we immediately bonded. Now, I grew up on the upper side, upper west side of Manhattan, and I never met an Orthodox Jew. Yes, it was possible. When I grew up there, there were probably a lot less of them, but um, uh, I didn't really, didn't know anything about Orthodoxy. Oh, uh, I had seen a anthropology film in a course on anthropological films about Hasidim in Williamsburg. That's about the closest they came, the only time I ever saw tefillin. And so it was all very new to me, but what really struck me is that here are these guys who had studied at Eish Torah, Jerusalem, school in Jerusalem, that they were sincerely grappling with a lot of the questions that I'd hoped would be addressed in my undergraduate humanities studies, in my liberal arts studies. Questions of how do we make the world a better place? How do we know who's right? 
What is human nature truly about? Do we really have free will? And of course, the big question about God. Now that one I thought I'd wrapped up in uh, Philosophy 101, we'd studied the refutation of Thomas Aquinas' proofs of God. And when the missionaries would come talk to us in the cafeteria, I went to Cornell as an undergraduate, uh, we would have all the answers for them. But I realized that my answers were a real, little too pat. And the only thing they asked, they said, if you're going to hang out here, uh, take a couple of classes, read a book, and you're welcome to stay. Now, I'd mentioned I'd gotten very sick, and so I needed to get medical tests done. And having been traveled out in the bush, my instincts were don't go to the kibbutz up north where I was already placed to volunteer. Get your medical test done in the capital. Now in Israel, I could have gotten medical tests done up north too. But I got, went to a lab, they did the tests, and the results kept getting delayed and delayed. And so I'd talk with these guys more, read some more books, and then it was Thursday. And they said to me, uh, we are not going to be here for the weekend. And sorry, you can't stay here long. But you can come with us if you want. Where? To Shabbat. Now, the only things I knew about Shabbat are that you don't take the elevator and you don't do anything. But I didn't really have any other choice. And it seemed they're nice enough guys. So I said, sure, I'll go with you guys. Friday morning, I get the results of my tests. Turned out I had not just severe dehydration. I had amoebic dysentery, staph infection. Was not in good shape. But, you know, could function. So then I start saying, well, you know, I have my results. I could just go to the kibbutz. But... I kind of felt bad because I'd committed to these guys to go for them, with them for Shabbat. So I was sitting there. I said, you know what? I committed. I'm going to go do it. But what puzzled me was, I knew you don't do anything Shabbat. So I kind of said to myself, why would you go somewhere to not do anything? If I want to not do anything, I can do it here. I didn't quite get that. But in any case, uh, we headed off to B'nai Brak. Now, B'nai Brock is like Brooklyn, Williamsburg, Borough Park combined. And it was quite the cross-cultural experience. Um, after being, having been in Africa, I wasn't too phased by it. We go to the guy's house. One of them went, one of them went with me. We go, arrive at the host. And he opens the door, and there he is with the black frock and the black hat and the curls and the beard and the whole getup. And I'm like, wow, this is going to be interesting. And he says... Coming in, welcome! And it turned out, and of course they'd done their homework, that this rabbi, was a rabbi, had been a Harvard classics professor, his wife a math professor. And uh, throughout the course of the Shabbat, part of me just said to myself, if this guy is here, there must be something to this. Must be something. Because... His credentials kind of fit. So we went to synagogue Friday night to the Panovich Yeshiva, enormous 1,000-person hall with birds flying up in the roof. You know, some things kind of stand out. Shabbat afternoon, went to this little shtibel with all these little kids with the curls bouncing over the tables. Um, it was a great experience. And they brought me to someone, and he said to me, 
another rabbi, said to me, you're obviously seeking something, right? Tops of mountains going. So you should come seek in Jerusalem. Come study. Gave me the pitch. And I was very interested. And I said to him, I want to, I will, but I'm not well. I need to go to kibbutz, recover, and then I will come to Jerusalem. Now, a lot of people start to get interested, start on their path, and the prospect of the changes that their journey will bring them are terrifying. And they bolt. So when I said, I'm going to be go to kibbutz, thank you very much, but I'll come to Jerusalem in a few weeks, they thought I simply had bolted. And so I head to kibbutz, and even that had these prodding moments. Uh, the first one was, there was a bar mitzvah. Now, what was the bar mitzvah in the kibbutz? That was kibbutz Gadot, which was Hashem HaTzair, uh, devoutedly non-Orthodox and uh, non-religious. So, the bar mitzvah was commando tactics. At night, they'd set up this whole, uh, what, like ropes course, and the kid went through it, fiery hoop of fire, jumping off elevations. That was the bar mitzvah. So I said to them, me, all of five days of Torah study, where's the religious part? Mind you, I had not been bar mitzvahed. We were... Uh, we, we had, uh, um, at 16 years old, um, uh, a graduation ceremony. Uh, that was about it from our Sunday school. So, but I said to them, you know, what do you do? You do something religious? And they said, we have dinner Rosh Hashanah. And that... Uh, that seemed to me like not enough. Something's off here. And then the next interesting experience happened. So kibbutz was great because we'd get up at four in the morning, go pick grapefruits. If you were quick and strong by eight, the eight o'clock breakfast break, you could have your whole carton of grapefruits picked, which I did, and I'd had the whole day free. So I heard about this artist colony. So I hitchhike up to this artist colony in Svat, and um, I visit the galleries. I didn't know anything about the synagogues, all the Jewish part of the old city. And I'm sitting there on near the top of the town, and I'm looking out over this view. And I'd climbed the Alps. I'd been 17,000 feet up Mount Kenya. And something hit me, something touched me about this view, this landscape my first transcendent religious experience, whatever you want to call it. I don't really want to put it into words, but somehow I felt connected to these mountains and this view and this land in a way I couldn't explain. And it was only later that I found out that I was in Sfat, which was the city of the Kabbalists, of the Jewish mystics. And over the years, I'd spend a lot of time in Sfat. It was always kind of my go back to place. I, I felt very connected there. So uh, I go back to the kibbutz and then something very disturbing happened, which was, and once again, once again, these prods poking me uh, and my Jewish identity. So most of the volunteers at the kibbutz were not Jewish. 
And one of the kids who was with me in Tel Aviv wound up coming to the kibbutz with me. And the guy was a little nebishy, I guess you'd say. And they started teasing him. So one night they get him drunk. And when he's totally passed out, they shave off one of his eyebrows. And I have to admit with shame that I wasn't strong enough to stand up against them and tell them to stop. But it so disgusted me, and particularly that it was these non-Jewish and German volunteers doing this to the Jewish kid, I left kibbutz. So I make my way to Jerusalem, travel there, and I don't know if I would have even gone to Jerusalem otherwise. I didn't really know much about Jerusalem, except that there was a wall. And I didn't even know what the wall was of. Uh, growing up in Manhattan, there were uh, the Upper West Side at the time had a lot of abandoned lots where you just had a wall left over of bricks. And I thought it was a brick wall standing there. Why is everyone going to it? So it wasn't anything compelling about Jerusalem, but the school was there. So I told these guys I was going to go. So I went. I kept my word, and I was sincerely interested in learning more. So I get to the school. It's uh, middle of the week, and I find the guy who was with me in Tel Aviv. Sure enough, he was there and said, See, I told you, I'm back. And he says, Well, that's great, and sits down with me. We start studying a little Hebrew. And he said, It's great you're here. You know, if you want to stay a few days. I said, Yes, we'll get you a dorm. He said, But there's no classes for three days. I'm like, What? The whole pitch was for me to come and study. That's why I came. He said, I'm really sorry, but actually it's a Jewish holiday. It's the holiday of Shavuot. So we've no classes, but there'll be some programs going on. No regular classes. Now, like many of you in Sunday or Hebrew school, you kind of know the holidays that are during the school year. School year ends, end of May, Shavuot never really made it on the map. But what would ha- wind up happening, I wound up staying for two months, and the two months were fascinating and engaging and uh, life-changing, although I wasn't sure yet where I stood with everything. I wound up going back to Cornell for a semester where I took Jewish studies and some Hebrew, and, uh, and then I felt like I need to go back to figure this out. What is this Torah? Uh, is this my path? How do I view it? Do I believe in God? And I wind up being six months in the issue and still struggling with these questions, you know, and finding one's path. Sometimes the questions don't come quickly and sometimes you have to invest to really kind of address something in a serious way. But then two things happen. The first one was I start to look back over the last year. And I realized something extraordinary. I realized that over that year, all of these moments were there prodding my Jewish identity. The Vietnamese student in Paris giving me grief about uh, Israel's enemies. Uh, the uh, the uh, um, guy in Egypt asking me what tribe you from and asking that I'm Jewish. The feeling of pride over Israel. And most importantly, most Uh, poignantly, I realized that I actually had a Seder for the first time in five years 
in Egypt. A Seder in Mitzrayim. Khartoum was part of the upper kingdom of Egypt. So I had a Seder in Egypt. And 50 days later, 49 days later, I arrived Erev Shavuot at the doors of the yeshiva, the day commemorating the giving of the Torah. And in essence, my journey had paralleled the journey of the Egyptians, uh, sorry, of the Jews, leaving Egypt and arriving at Mount Sinai, except I arrived at the yeshiva. And so I looked back and I felt like this cannot be coincidence. It's too much, uh, there's too many moments of uh, convergence of events, too many people placed along my path, and mostly too much of a coincidence for me to have had the lineup of Passover and Shavuot. And so that's the first thing that really impacted my belief and helped me turn the corner. And I think when people ask me, you know, what is the foundation of belief? Often it's the personal experiences we have in our lives. And the second thing that happened was that my grandmother passed away. And either there was no one to say Kaddish for her, of her and her three siblings who escaped Nazi Austria. Uh, My children, our children, are the only Jewish great-grandchildren. And so uh, there was no one else to say Kaddish for her. And either Kaddish was just a nice custom that we do to remember the deceased, and I'd say it when it was convenient for me, or there's a soul, and there's an afterlife. And my saying Kaddish will help move my grandmother's soul through the levels of the spiritual dimensions after this life. And it was no longer a hypothetical question, do I believe or not? It was life challenging me, saying you have to make a decision. And from the path I took, you can see the decision I made. And so I decided to stay on for a year and a half, eventually transferred to Yeshiva University, and always already was thinking about perhaps rabbinic school. And uh, over that time, there's a very powerful teaching from Rabbi Benjamin Blech. I was in his class at Yeshiva University, well-known speaker and author, and he commenting on the birth of Moses. So the daughter of Paro plucks him out of the river, and she names him Moshe. Because from the water he was drawn. Now, the Ibn Ezra, one of the commentators, point out that if his name had been to be drawn out, it should be Mashui, not Moshe. Moshe means to draw out. And so in essence, she was giving him a blessing that that which you yourself, Moshe, you have been drawn out of the water, may you draw others out as well. May that be your journey and your path. And so uh, it really struck me. And so I eventually realized that my path, my purpose, my journey was to uh, help other people who also had set out on a similar journey of discovering their Judaism, of searching for meaning in their lives, and often, and this is part of our finding our purpose, the challenges and the experiences we go through often are the, are the forming ground 
for that which we will be able to turn around and then give to others. And you find, for instance, in a lot of these recovery programs, the counselors are the people who themselves have gone through that experience. And so that's one of the principles of finding our purpose is to use our life experiences to help guide us to understand how can I then take these and share them with others and help others along the journey that I might have made. Uh, thank you for joining us. Have a good evening. Next Monday, we'll be doing the third part of Finding Our Purpose, and we'll be talking about how to find our purpose in terms of our professional lives. So, career counseling and Jewish wisdom. On Wednesday, the Exceptional Jewish Personalities will be doing uh, Hanash Shenesh, the Zionist uh, hero who parachuted behind Nazi lines as a spy, and uh, we'll talk about her heroism. So join us for that as well. Have a good evening.